The wheels were about to fall off the bus. Mission failure was a real threat. Employees in the office of the chief financial officer at the Health and Human Services Department were in dire straits. Sheila Conley, the long-serving deputy CFO, initiated a decade-long culture change that moved the office from dismal to thriving. In this week's Federal Report, Conley tells executive editor Jason Miller about what it takes to drive this type of change. In those early years, about 10 years ago, one of the issues that we recognized is that while we were accomplishing the most significant things like a clean audit opinion and um, meeting reporting deadlines, that work was being done on the backs of a few people at senior levels, uh, really through heroic efforts. But that is not a sustainable way to build an organization. And so at that point in time, we realize we need to do something. We really need to look at our organization. We need to look at our workforce. We need to make sure folks understand what's expected of them, what's expected at every level, whether you're an executive, a manager, or staff member. And we really undertook a comprehensive review of our mission and how we were going to accomplish that mission through our workforce. One of the things when people say, well, we're going to review how our culture is, look at the mission. We can't do the work on the backs of just a few employees. That's one of those things where people say, okay, well, that's really nice to say, but it rarely, or there's a feeling at least that how often does that work out for the, in, in the good way? It's just, it's, it's a self-licking ice cream cone. What did you do to solve them? The feedback, people say it's a gift, but it was a painful gift uh, to receive, but necessary. Once we acknowledge the extent and pervasiveness of our issues, then we as a leadership team had to be, there are a couple things that we agreed to take on at that time, 10 years ago. One, we knew we had to be intentional. That workforce engagement and developing people and improving a culture doesn't happen by accident just because you have individual, you know, great individuals working for you. You have to, as an organization, be quite intentional and deliberate about making this a priority. Two, it's a continuous process. It doesn't change overnight. You can't change culture in a short period of time, and you really need to do it over an extended period of time. It's a continuous effort. You're never done. <laughs> the environment changes. The world changes. Our people changes, change. And um, the expectations of our organizations change. So it's a continuous process. A continuous feedback loop is critical. We've used the FEVSCORE results uh, to help us monitor our progress here, which those results have been essential. You know, you have results at the agency level, at the sub-agency level, and then where you have offices that have results from more than 10 employees, you can actually get much more detailed information. And so by encouraging our folks to respond to the survey, uh, we've been able to get quite a bit of really more granular detail about how we're doing, whether leaders are leading, whether our managers are managing, and whether our staff is fully engaged in, in their efforts. When you talk about you have to be intentional, it's got to be a priority, it doesn't happen overnight, some of that comes back to leadership and, and something that you or, unfortunately, your boss, the CFO, that changes because that's a political appointee. What were some of those tricks or efforts you made, initiatives you went forward with to make sure folks knew that 
this is still a priority today, still a priority tomorrow, still a priority in six months. Yeah, there are a couple of things, and if you don't mind, I'll help. I'd like to explain a little bit of our journey. So we weren't in a good place. We realized we had to improve things. We, as a leadership team, we had many vacancies at our senior executive level. We also had a lot of vacancies at the management level and the workforce level. I decided to start at the senior executive level to really focus on making sure we hired and recruited and hired executives that had the right kind of mindset that bought into where we wanted to go, not where we had been, not where they had been, but where we as an organization wanted to go. It turns out that each of our SES positions here, we have five total. There were four at the time. Each of those, uh, we had three that, that were vacant over during this early period of time. In addition, we created some new management positions at the GS-15 level, and we hired quite a few GS-15s. Of the group that was on board in uh, our GS-15 managers in 2015, the vast majority of those are still on board today. And we made it very, again, intentional to ensure that those professionals who had come up through either accounting, auditing, statistics, financial systems, IT backgrounds, cybersecurity, um, all various technical accomplishments that have allowed them to get to the positions where they were perhaps aren't the best experiences to learn how to manage people and organizations. And so we made concentrated efforts to hire very capable people, have them work together as a core of managers across so they had some sounding boards, and then we worked on training and development efforts. As far as the workforce goes, we made, we worked with our human capital professionals to come and talk to the entire office to clearly explain that if you're a GS 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, here are the expectations for your position in a generic sense and then mapped with your position description so you, you know, with the particulars of your, of your job. But we wanted to ensure that every person in the office knew what the expectations were. And as you move up in the organization, those, while the expectations are similar, your degree of responsibility and independence and ability to run more things in your span of control increases. That was very illuminating for a lot of people. This seems to be almost the top-down change. Was there a reason you said, let's start at the top to change the culture to top? Is that the idea that it bleeds down to the bottom? Given where we were with those vacancies, we took the top-down approach. We had a series of, of vacancies my theory was if we can hire, exec, bring on board key executives who we had a shared mindset about the organizational development and individual development and growth and where we wanted to go as an organization, then that would cascade down through the management tier and the, the general workforce. I mean, but I will tell you in terms of employee engagement and how we've been able to improve our results and improve the culture over time, it's a combination. I mean, you need the tone at the top. 
you need that mood in the middle um, by the management team, and then you need the buzz at the base. And it all works together. It's upward, it's downward, it's across. And it is somewhat infectious because it not only is restricted to the walls of our organizations within the Office of Finance, but we have much better relationships now with our colleagues across the Office of the Secretary as well as working with those we serve in the the CFO community across HHS. Let's jump over to the second piece. You said be consistent, be continuous discuss how that worked. Initially, our employee engagement score, which is a key key measure that we, we look at, in, in, in addition to other feedback loops. But we started out, our employee engagement was under 60%. It's now, today, 88%. That's about a 50% increase over time. So we're very proud of that. But again, we're proud at that moment in time. It's a continuous effort, right? In terms of global satisfaction, that's gone from 47% back in 2013, and now it's at 82%, so about a 75% increase in that score. And then the belief in action, and this, I think, is critical for the future. Our belief in action, meaning folks in our organization think these results are going to be used to improve the culture, improve the workplace environment, create a positive professional working environment. Uh, that's gone from 43% in 2013 to 85% in 2022. So that's about a 98% increase. But these are static, right? That, those are the results as of uh, 2022. And so how do we assure ourselves that this will continue? There's a couple things that we've done, and we've continued to build on these things over time. I mentioned bringing in new people, hosting a workshop. In 2015, we began to use broadly among our our leadership team, executive coaching for both our our executives and our managers and supervisors. In 2016, we brought on board an administrative officer who's charged with employee engagement. That was the first time we developed a, was the inaugural Office of Finance FEVS action plan so that we could then We love our positive scores, but we track very closely the negative scores. And we look at the the highest negatives every year that come back through the individual questions, responses. And those we look at, we try to unpack it. The FEVS is great to tell you where you are, where you might have issues, but it doesn't tell you how to solve them. That's up to us. That's why we're here. (laughs) So we put together an action plan that was 2016 and have continued that. And then in 2017, we expanded our executive coaching service to the entire Office of Finance workforce. And I don't know about you, but as I was coming up in my career, having the chance to have an executive coach to help me, a sounding board, uh, just someone to talk to, advise, counsel, et cetera, that is, would have been a tremendous gift, I think, to me, and, and many of our people have taken advantage of it. I would say most over time. Sheila Connolly, Deputy Chief Financial Officer at the Health and Human Services Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out all our federal reports at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.